Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or better known as ADHD, is a mental disorder that affects an individual's ability to focus, causing them to move around more frequently. They may also have trouble controlling their impulsive behaviors. Welcome to Episode 1, aka Episode 6 of Unofficial Translation. We're redoing our first podcast as we felt there was too much theory and that we could do a better job from a slightly different angle. Hopefully we did a better job this time as two 20-somethings talk about study drugs. Again. (laughs) Since 2007, prescriptions for Adderall have doubled in the U.S. An estimated 30% of undergraduate students have used Adderall at some point to enhance their studies. More prevalent than ever, in this podcast we'll discuss some background regarding study drugs. With our main question being the process and potential inefficiencies of diagnosis as well as the ethical dilemma of the prescription of study drugs to kids. So first, let's talk a little bit about what this class of drugs are. Study drugs, smart drugs, or other medications more formally known as nootropics. These refer to any drug, substance, supplement, you name it, that has the potential to improve cognitive function. Often these agents are involved in modulating pathways involved in our executive functioning. So these are things like decision-making, memory, creativity, reward, and motivation. Although there are many supplements that claim to have nootropic properties, for instance, uh, omega-3 fish oils. Yeah. These are supplements that can be considered nootropic because we know that taking omega-3 fish oils is good for cognitive function. But for the purpose of this discussion, when we say study drug or any of those other words I used, we're talking about therapeutic stimulants. Now, the main drug classes that we'll be referring to are your amphetamines. So these are things like Vyvanse, Adderall, Dystextamphetamine, which is famous for being used by snipers and fighter pilots to help them focus. I know it's pretty wild, right? Yeah. Methylphenidates, which are things like Ritalin and Concerta. These are your early... Um, study drugs, if you will, or smart drugs, nootropics that Hattie will get into a little bit later. And finally, a class that, at least in my experience, I've begun to hear about in the context of cognitive performance enhancing drugs. And this is, it seems like a newer thing. I haven't really heard of it up until recently. And these are things called eugoroics, something like modafinil, which we'll oh, talk about a little that, bit is later. That the drug from... Is that the drug that's similar to the one from Limitless? I think that's what it is based off of. Yeah. But it's- It's (laughs) It's like a superpower. It was originally used in in narcolepsy, but yeah, it's a a little bit of a different twist that has a similar function. Now, interestingly, the amphetamine class of nootropics are incredibly similar to crystal meth that's used on the streets. Yeah, it's like one or two, like it's close chemically, It's really close. Um, I mean- Well, I hear amphetamine in the name. Yeah, amphetamine salts. It's a, there's methamphetamine, that's crystal meth. And then there's dextamphetamine and other listextamphetamine and all these things. They all have the same. Which are used in classrooms. Exactly. Now, there are a ton of other medications class that could fall under the umbrella of nootropics. Things like racetams, cholinergics, uh, other dopamine analogs that are used in Parkinson's, for example, along with other more commonly used drugs such as nicotine and caffeine. These are also nootropics, but you know what? Like that's, that's, I don't think talking about those does justice to the actual yeah. CNS stimulants we're talking about, the amphetamines and methylphenidates and all that sort of yeah. stuff. Yeah, and that's that's because these medications are clinically used for the treatment of ADHD. 
And in the case of eugorroics, like modafinil for narcolepsy, it's now also being used to treat ADHD as well. So why are they so heavily abused by students? If you step into any college campus around exam season, like pre-COVID, because you can't step on a college campus now, <laughs> uh, chances are you'll hear someone talking about an Addy or a Vibe or popping a Conky to stay up all night and, you know, like study, try to get an A. But, but why? First, I think it's important to understand what it is they do before understanding the appeal of them. Generally speaking, these CNS stimulants, CNS for central nervous system, they're ingested orally and they make their way across the blood-brain barrier after an hour or half an hour or whatever it is to whatever receptors they act on in the brain. So both the amphetamine salts and methylphenidates increase dopamine and norepinephrine signaling in the brain primarily. Both of these are stimulating excitatory neurotransmitters. Specifically, I really want to mention dopamine. Dopamine, most people associate as the happy neurotransmitter. It's involved in reinforcing, rewarding behavior. It's what gives you pleasure. So this is the one that's released after eating chocolate or working out, or for those of you out there doing cocaine. <laughs> dopamine is responsible for the gratification of the smart drug of the smart drug user when they're doing a monotonous and dry task, like studying. Now, they also activate norepinephrine pathways. And norepinephrine, on the other hand, is associated with the increased focus and concentration that you get. Some smart drugs also act on serotonin receptors, and this is kind of where modafinil falls in. But altogether, these processes improve alertness, focus, and in turn, cognitive function. And I think that's pretty interesting that this has begun to increase over time, but I think we need to get a bit more background in the history of how these drugs became so prevalent. Nootropics being classified is not as old of a story as you might think due to the chemical complexity and recent rise of drugs like this. This class of drugs are meant to describe a new classification of molecules that act selectively towards the brain's higher level integrative activity. So the technical term for such agents is nootropic. And this term was actually coined in 1972 by Dr. Georgia, a psychologist and chemist from Romania. And nootropic actually means mind affecting. So Dr. Georgia set some criteria to help define what would then be considered nootropics. So these five criteria goes as follows. One, it needs to be an aid to improve working memory or learning. Two, sort of a weird one, a little bit debatable, but it needs to support brain function under hypoxic conditions or after electroconvulsive therapy. You can tell that this was definitely written back in 1972. Yeah, I wonder what he was on. <laughs> now three, it needs to protect the brain from physical or chemical toxicity. Four, it needs to add natural cognitive functions, which would then be enhanced. And five, it's required to be non-toxic to humans without depression or stimulation to the brain. Yeah, so I mean, these are some criteria that he listed back in the day. I mean, most of the nootropics we talk about today are pretty questionable when it comes to many of these criteria. For example, there's always debate about whether 
nootropics improve working memory or learning or if it just kind of the beneficial effects just come from increased focus that you didn't have before but yeah i mean you can see that this has been something that's been discussed for quite some time for quite some time and it's interesting because uh, dr georgia developed this definition of this class of drugs but many study drugs were created before as well as many being created after so here's a quick history on the creation of the most popular study drugs today so it seems like romanians were pretty involved in the um development of these nootropics. Uh, another Romanian chemist named Dr. Lazar Adeneliu. Adelianu. Yeah, <laughs> I think you got it. Uh, first synthesized amphetamine in 1887. But here's the thing, they couldn't find a practical use for it at the time, so they forgot about it for over 40 years. And then an American chemist named Gordon Als rediscovered it in the context of trying to treat asthma. He just wanted a solution for asthma. So so it was discovered in the late 1800s, but they, they didn't have anything to use it for. They, they were just like, I have this crazy brain thing. And yeah, they're just And then like, 40 years later, they're thinking about using it for asthma. And then that that's that's a common theme you'll find- In the early in, 1900s. In the early 1900s, late even 1800s. today. I mean, you'll find so many, this is off, off beat, but you'll find so many medications are repurposed. You synthesize it in a lab, you don't know what it does, or you kind of have an effect of it, an idea of its effects, but what are the clinical applications of this? Yeah. So, isn't that why drugs sometimes change indications frequently? All the time. And it's just repurposing. I mean, you can synthesize a chemical molecule and not know all its effects. You, you could look at it in the long term, short term, different disorders. It's, it's pretty actually amazing. It's kind of why I love pharmacology. But um, that was a little bit of a tangent. What Alice did trying to treat to asthma is he tested a 50 milligram dose of this drug that was created in 1887. That's another thing people did all the time. They just tested it on themselves. Always test it on yourself. Yeah, I mean, and this was like before ethics review boards and stuff yeah, like that. So there's no just, IRB. There's no IRB. You just, you just take the dose if you want to know if it works. And just a note, this is 50, or sorry, this is five times more than the standard dose of this drug. And I'll tell you what the drug is in a bit. And these are kind of the things he reported. He reported feeling heart palpitations. He felt super euphoric. And he had a quote unquote, rather sleepless night. <laughs> now, they quickly realized that amphetamine had little effect on asthma. It wasn't useful in treating asthma. It's but its stimulant uh, properties made it popular for many other uses, including depression, weight loss, and as an energizing pet pill for soldiers in World War II. And voila, a wonderful origin story for the Adderall brand, which was introduced in 1996. So a hundred years earlier it was created, but the practical use was then sold a hundred, like in the 90s. Yeah, repurposed for ADHD. Wow. So uh, another drug, uh, methylphenidate, which is better known by its trade name Ritalin, uh, an additional trade formulation is branded as Concerta, two that you may be fami familiar with, uh, was synthesized in 1944 by the chemist Leandro Panizon, who I'm just guessing is Italian, <laughs> but he could be American, Italian. Uh, it, it first began to be used as a treatment for ADHD in the 60s. No real story here, just some information. Now, more recently, um, the drug Lisdex amphetamine. This drug, marketed in the US as Vyvanse, 
was developed as an alternative to amphetamine that would be longer lasting and have a lower potential for abuse, which it in fact does. And it received FDA approval for use in adults in 2008, very recently, and is currently the newest anti-ADHD drug on the market. So that's kind of interesting. I mean, it's you see kind of the progression of science and how they were able to develop these drugs. And, and the reason I'm saying that is because Vyvanse, which is made of lixanamphetamine salts, it is what we call a prodrug. So what happens when you ingest it is it's not active in the pill form. You need to take it, you need to metabolize it for the active ingredient to actually have its stimulating effect. So now you kind of go away from the raw stimulants like methylphenidate and Adderall, and now you kind of have a more um, tempered version of it. And that's just, I mean, a little anecdote yeah, about this, this is the improvement of, of medicine through trial and error. And we see this with other things outside of medications, but it really is a testament to the fact that uh, you you pour in sort of funding towards research and we can continuously have a positive sum result where things can become more efficient. And I know uh, Vyvanse has a lower potential for abuse. I think one thing is that uh, it can't be uh, abused in, by, by snorting in the similar way that other drugs have been. Yeah, and this goes back to, yeah, a lot, it's just, a lot of people use methylphenidate. For example, people will crush up Ritalin tablets and then snort it so that it goes directly into the bloodstream. And this is what I was talking about, about that pro-drug effect. Ritalin is active in its tablet form. So you can crush it up, snort it, and it'll get absorbed into the blood vessels in your nose. Now, the reason you can't do that with Vyvanse is because, as I mentioned, it's a pro-drug. It needs to be activated in either the gut or the small intestine. And if oh. you take it in your nose, even if it gets into the bloodstream, you bypassed the activation mechanism, which is the stomach or the small intestine, your GI tract. Now, that's interesting because this potential of abuse has led to like a, a rapid rise in popularity. So we want to take this next section to discuss more about this rise in popularity over the last 10 to 20 years and what that really means. And kind of how this fueled these advancements in new drugs. They wouldn't be developing new drugs if there wasn't a Problems. demand for it. Yeah, this, exactly. is, this is just fundamental economics, supply 100%. and demand. Now, all of the stimulants we just described have a relatively high potential for abuse, with Vyvanse sort of being an exception, but it still does cause dependence because they raise levels of dopamine in the brain as you have earlier described. Now, although at therapeutic doses, this increase in dopamine is key for the calming and focusing effects needed to treat ADHD, but elevated dopamine can also suppress appetite, increase energy and wakefulness, and provide a feeling of euphoria. Therefore, stimulants are often abused by individuals who do not have ADHD in order to control their weight, enhance their academic performance, and most troublingly, get high for recreational purposes. Now, a survey by the Partnerships for Drug-Free Kids in 2014 reported that 20% of college students 
reported abusing prescription stimulants. That's a pretty high number. And honestly, I wouldn't yeah, be one in five. I wouldn't be surprised if it's higher than that. Yeah. It's depending on the campus you're on. I it seems like every year that there's a statistic regarding study drugs, uh, the, the numbers just become more insane. And I, I think a lot of the, especially in, the, in undergrad, it's such a toxic environment, especially at some schools. I mean, here in Toronto at U of T, for example, uh, schools like Waterloo, there's so much fierce competition. Yeah, it's hyper-competitive. It's really hyper-competitive. And, and surveys show that the students aren't as happy. There's higher suicide rates out of these places, but it, it's all fueled from this competition. And, and students will try and get whatever edge they can. And I'm sure this, this stretches to the States. I mean, about two and a half million Americans are prescribed prescription stimulants like Ritalin and Adderall for their ADHD. And many of these people, many people outside of this two and a half million also get and use these drugs illegally, buying it off a friend or your friendly neighborhood campus dealer that you met outside the lib. I mean, fasting, act, fast acting formulations of these are even used at parties and rapes. I mean, I've seen it, so I believe it, but it doesn't really make sense, right? Like it's outside of, uh, you know, they call the millennial generation, sort of generation Adderall mm -hmm. because like the drugs of old were LSD and cocaine. And now it's like primarily weed and study drugs. That's what you see. Every, just even, even a uh, 21 and 22 Jump Street. Yeah. Oh, sorry, 22 Wi-Fi. Well, Wi-Fi, yes. Exactly. It, it was it, a study drug. Work hard, play hard. Yeah. NZT, Limitless. We could talk, there's plenty of examples in the media of how, I mean. Drugs have become so prevalent nowadays that you can find them at any street corner and especially on a campus as you said even from your friendly neighborhood campus dealer hey man they're everywhere <laughs> but so, one of these one of the reasons these drugs have gained a lot of popularity is because the fda has approved versions of these drugs that last much longer i mean there's extended release versions that can last up to like 12 hours more young people are diagnosed with ADHD than ever before. I mean, in fact, I mean, the past decade, the manufacturing of prescri prescription stimulants has increased by 9 million percent. Wait a minute. It was 22. <laughs> Sorry, 9 million percent. That oh. is absurd. That is wild. Imagine like you're creating one pill. And then now you're creating what's nine million? Yeah, I mean that's a that's a good basis to you. It's 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 insane. And uh, pardon me for messing up the intro. We needed to really like uh, put an emphasis on the ridiculousness of that number. I mean that's that reminds like tell me that's not reflective in another universe or maybe in this universe of the opiate crisis. I mean, that's exactly it. Sort of the opioid crisis. I wouldn't say 2.0 because they're sort of parallel to each other. And they're different. They are different. I mean, one, I mean, maybe we were, we could do some type of episode on that. But I think later on, we're going to discuss a little bit about pharmaceuticals and their role here. But this uh, growth is bolstering. Now, many skeptics have created a controversy because this ADHD drug is used so uh, so often, many skeptics are saying that ADHD might not even be a real disorder. That's controversial. Now, others would say that even if ADHD is real, 
that there are other methods to combat the negative aspects of ADHD outside of using an amphetamine-related prescription drug. Yes, I mean, there's there's new studies coming out about high-concentration acosapentanoic uh, uh, acid, which is uh, an omega-3 that if you take in high enough doses could actually improve cognitive performance in people with ADHD. And that's so, without having to provide some of those with negative... stimulants. Yeah. I mean, there's some, if you, if you go and talk to your psychiatrist and you're prescribed these ADHD stimulants and you tell them you don't want a stimulant, there are other non-stimulant versions of it. But here's the thing. It seems like the stimulants are the most widely prescribed and arguably the most effective and that's why this is going to continue to be an issue and i think that segues really nicely into our main question or one of our two questions which is the process of diagnosis from your psychiatrist or your general practitioner and how this in general for mental health issues can be problematic now i've known people that in university that would go on Google, figure out the symptoms of ADHD, would go to their doctor, could act out these symptoms and act out these situations and get prescribed some type of uh, stimulant like Adderall or Concerta or Vyvanse, maybe at a low dosage, but still be able to get it at a, at a prescription number that's like 60 or 70 pills. Yeah, so I mean, at least here in Canada, they'll prescribe you once a month yeah so but- you have to pick it up once a month and you only have enough tablets for that month but if you make your adhd out to be some gps do refills some gps do refills and i think it's just the fact that unlike for example a broken bone where you can order a scan diagnosing things out of the dsm-5 is subjective in a lot of ways yeah it's based on patient explanation and actual written and cognitive testing now to my knowledge there aren't any accurate scans like cat scans or something that can confirm adhd so it needs to be described to the practitioner in order to be understood and that makes the entire job of proper diagnosis a lot more difficult especially when the drug is so desirable to many people so Remember how I just said five seconds ago that you could get 60 pills in a month? Yep. So say, or 60 pills over two months until the next time you see them. Those 60 pills, if you're under 25 in Ontario, for example, the amount that would cost entirely would probably be somewhere between 20 and $40. Yep. Now compare that, say you're getting 60 pills and you're selling each pill for $10 illegally. You just made a huge margin. So there's a lot of uh, opportunity, not only for abuse, but for illicit exchange. Now, how is this drug prescribed? Many times, practitioners use something called the DSM-5. Yeah, so that's the gold standard for psychiatrists to diagnose mental disorders. So the way ADHD is broken down is it's broken down to three, I guess, archetypes. On the DSM-5. On the, in the DSM-5. Um, there's inattention, hyperactivity and impulsivity. And there's a list of different symptoms. And in order to be diagnosed with ADHD, along with um, other cognitive testing, like the blot tests, um, questionnaires, surveys, all that sort of stuff, you need to have 
I believe it's six or more of these symptoms. Now, let me tell you what these symptoms are and how easy it is to fool yeah, your psychiatrist. Yeah, so explain to me, because I, I wanna know if, because my theory is that it might be vague. Now, uh, let's see if you can help me out here. What are some of these questions? I mean, I don't know if they're questions as much as symptoms, but just say some, a couple from inattention, a couple from hyperactivity and a couple from impulsivity. All right, um, are you disorganized? Yes. Is that a product of a underlying psychological condition or is that because you're lazy? So if I want this drug, I will say it's due to an underlying psychological condition. Are you forgetful? Yes. Are you easily distractible? Yes. Are you able to complete the tasks you set out to do? Well, I mean, no. <laughs> there you go. There you have four of the, of the six symptoms. Really? So I can just... I mean, it's not even hard to lie about that. Some people don't have to. I mean, many people under the age of 25 don't have to. And I think that's kind of where we reach this ethical crossroads where you have these children that are developing, they're developing skills, they're developing habits and personalities, and maybe they fall under some of these symptoms, but does it necessarily mean that the first resort should be to prescribe them a stimulant? Yeah, and that's another great segue you have. You're doing great. Uh, diagnosing in youth and the dosing of youth is another major ethical concern. Now, in recent years, there has been an increase in the number of drugs approved for use in children to treat emerging mental illness. So these drugs were approved on the basis of short-term efficacy studies. And surprisingly, I mean, it's surprising to give your kids something when little is known about their long-term effects. So psychostimulants such as methylphenidate and amphetamine have been approved for many years for the treatment of ADHD in children as young as six years old. Now, you ask a six-year-old any of those DMS-5 or DSM-5 questions or symptoms, they're going to get them all. And as well, it's sort of unfair to put that kind of stress and testing on a kid who hasn't even finished doing four plus four math problems. And I think here, here's a big issue. You're now, by associating a condition, and, and, and here's the thing. I'm not saying that, like ADHD is, is a thing. It's been evaluated in numerous, numerous studies. It impacts a lot, a lot of people. But I guess the main question we're trying to discuss is whether they should be, whether these kids should be prescribed such high doses of these drugs. I mean, although infrequent, off-label use of high dose methylphenidate, so 54 milligrams per dose, has been reported Jeez. for treatment in five-year-old children. That's the second highest dose extended release tablet available on the market after 72 milligrams. Typically, the indicated dose is about 18 milligrams. And you raise this in, the psychiatrist may raise this in increments of 18 until they reach 72 milligrams. Now, 54 milligrams is a crap ton of methylphenidate. In the United States, it's estimated that 5% of children aged six to seven are prescribed stimulants. So 5%. So that is like a crazy increase. But this increase is, is crazy 20 years ago, but every year it seems to be increasing. 
This use of psychostimulants in children, especially adolescents at this 6 to 10 age, is because of, in fact, their effectiveness in improving and reducing the hyperactivity, cognitive, and behavioral symptoms of ADHD. So management of these symptoms does in fact improve social interaction and intellectual performance. Now, the National Institute of Mental Health reports that childhood mental disease, and I put that in quotation marks, contrary to earlier thinking, can begin at very young ages. Basically saying that an earlier diagnosis and treatment equals a better prognosis, which I think is a bit of a jump. See, here's the thing. I and I also disagree with you in a sense because I think that it's important for clinicians to identify individuals that may have distress later in life. I mean, ADHD is associated with higher risk of uh, developing anxiety later in life, of substance abuse, of depression. So it's important to... to identify these people at a young age but on the other hand there are some consequences to this studies have shown that the use of these stimulant medications is associated with detrimental effects on sleep and growth in children the earlier a kid is on a stimulant the more likely they are to experience insomnia later in life they're going to grow less in terms of their stature than other kids their age and they also tend to weigh a little bit less than kids their age and in similar size so although the benefits to some kids may outweigh the potential consequences, the high prescription rates are pretty concerning. And now like looking at like young chemical intervention on yet developed brains, like that represents a significant concern. Now, although it may work, there is evidence that the use of neuroleptic and other psychotropic medications makes long-term, if not permanent changes in brain structure. Now, there's also many warning signals that point toward an increased risk of mania and even suicide brought about by these psychotropic medications. So, I mean, have these diet disorders been hidden from view in past generations and only now we're able to locate, diagnose and treat them? I mean, there's a, there's a large stigma towards ADHD and, and mental disorders in general. I mean, if you ask some traditional old heads, if you will, yeah. about ADHD, they'll think that if, if, if you are a kid that was diagnosed with ADHD and you have a super conservative parent, yeah, perhaps- the cultural implication exists as well. I mean, we're not even talking about the opinions and understanding of sort of a worldwide demographic. I mean, in America and Canada, that already exists, the stigma. But from a worldwide demographic, that stigma only increases. Exactly. And now you have this kid that now thinks that something is wrong with them. Where if you talk to a lot of adults with ADHD that have lived with it their whole life, they come to an understanding that ADHD isn't necessarily a crutch, but it's just a different wiring of their brain. And once they learn to adapt to that, they're able to function very well. And many of the most successful people in the world have ADHD. Yeah, they, they can excel. So... This increase in childhood mental disorders is, again, a more recent phenomenon. So why does that make sense? Why are poor children, those on Medicaid or in the foster care system, or even in residential settings, more often diagnosed and medicated? Now, one thing we do know, and 
I don't think this is controversial because this is again parallel to the opioid epidemic. Pharmaceutical marketing took on new life in the 90s. And at the same time, so did a host of mental disorders. Now, who stands to gain the most from promoting a medical versus non-medical story for children dealing with academic trouble? Now, we believe therapists are obliged to not take the easy road by abandoning tried and true counseling skills in favor of a quick fix, aka medication. Being up to date on the latest pediatric psychopharmacology at the expense of adding to or strengthening other practices only bolsters medical dominance and diminishes the choices we can offer. I am all for pharmacotherapy. My background is in pharmacology and I think that there's a huge role pharmacology plays and advancements in pharmacology on the increased health span that we've experienced over the past 50 years. But when concerned parents approach them, and we're talking about the therapist and psychiatrist, we should be ready and willing with a range of non-medical strategies to deal with the concerns of these parents and their children that may exhibit some signs of ADHD. ADHD. Or other sort of attention type disorders. Now, there are some proven alternatives, okay? so. Again, you were talking earlier about this form of omega-3 that is, isn't really a stimulant, but can also be prescribed by your psychiatrist to help deal with some of these issues. Outside of that, a lot of everyday activities and healthy scheduling can really help uh, kids get on track. Now, uh, meditation has been proven to be a great method. Uh, great sleep is so underrated for all ages, not just children, but it's incredibly important for function. And uh, exercise daily improves uh, your ability to focus and uh, be able to sort of excel in certain tasks, as well as healthy eating. The point being, lifestyle should be prioritized by the clinician and optimized before pharmacotherapy and medications in form of stimulants yeah, is involved. Especially for children. Nootropic use is common. It's used to treat a variety of cognitive disorders, but also has a high potential of abuse with potentially long-lasting consequences that we don't fully understand. So they interact with complex and delicate brain circuitry responsible for pleasure, attention, and emotion. And that's interesting kind of uncharted territory. I mean, in one form, these medications are used as therapy and treatment in a slightly different formulation and it becomes a destroyer of communities and is a highly abused and dangerous drug, especially in the context of education. Now, these formulations, flawed as they may be, are critical in new drug formulations. Moving forward, they will be able to achieve the same results in improving attention and focus without many of the other drawbacks, like how Vyvanse was improved after, after the conception of Adderall. So these are tools that can help. In the future, there will be even less addictive potential and mental health consequences in future versions of nootropics. But study drugs are too widely prescribed, arguably too widely prescribed as a tool rather than a medication. Children can be exposed to prescription nootropics without exploring enough alternative therapies. In adulthood, people are to make their own decisions about using whatever they want as long as they aren't breaking any legal guidelines. 
but they should also know to bear the risk and liability of whatever downstream repercussions they may face. Overall, there is a place for study drugs to exist. We need to develop better methodologies to diagnose and prescribe for kids and adults, as well as being able to curb the illicit exchange of these drugs. <laughs>